Welcome back to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. I'm Chelsea, and today we have a special guest, Max, um, from Max Gets Curious. Uh, she grew up with situational mutism and is a speaker and writer, and she runs a website called Max Gets Curious. She writes about situational mutism, mental health, self-love, Asian American history, LGBTQ plus issues, and spiritual abuse. She's an excellent speaker, and she shares her story through speaking engagements, podcasts, articles, social media, and more. So welcome, Max. Thank you so much for having me. So Max prefers the term situational mutism as opposed to selective mutism. I really like that. I don't know. I guess I never like got on board with calling it something else just because that's what everyone else calls it, selective mutism. But I do like calling it situational so I'm wondering I guess a lot of people dislike the term selective mutism because it implies choosing not to speak so can you tell me kind of why you prefer situational mutism instead definitely so um so I learned about SM for the first time when I was age 19 so by that time wow I think that the kind of like situational mutism idea was it was around at that time so you know if I had grown up no like knowing it always as selective mutism maybe I would feel differently um but because I came into the like SM space around that time um that was one of the first things I was introduced to and I remember um when I first learned about SM it was as selective mutism obviously because that's mm -hmm. the official term for it and I struggled so much with the question of like, is this actually something that I experience, or am I just like exaggerating all of my issues and like I don't actually have this disorder, you know, yes. like the imposter syndrome uh -huh. that some of us go through. And um, a lot of it was because it was like selective mutism. So I was like, does this mean that I like I am choosing to be mute? And that was something this assumption that was put on me like my whole life right. by everybody around me. Um, and that I like really internalize as like this means that I'm bad. It's just a character flaw. It's just like a per like a personal weakness. I'm just too shy. So it kind of just fed into all of those assumptions that I grew up with. And then when I heard about situational mutism, it really changed my perspective. And I found that when I was telling people about SM, when I used situational mutism instead of selective mutism, the like understanding is just like immediate uh -huh. because when I would tell people you know like I have selective mutism I think that there is always the like assumption that because the, the word is selective yeah it means that you're selecting to be mute and that you know that it, it's just it just feeds into a lot of the assumptions and stereotypes mm -hmm. that a lot of people with SM including me really really struggle with um and that's why I'm definitely a fan of situational over selective. Yeah. I also um, heard that it was originally elective mutism. Yeah. Right. And then um, there are parents, I think, in the 90s who were lobbying for elective mutism to be changed to selective mutism. Yeah. Because they didn't want the um, misconception that people were choosing to be mute. Right. But unfortunately, they just put one letter in front of the word and then it still <laughs> had the same, like, yeah, same miscon misconception. Right. And a lot of people that I've seen who um, 
who favor situational mutism are people who have SM or saying like this is better right. for me. That's just yeah. What I wonder how hard it would be to like lobby for that again and try to change it because I think I know it's so misunderstood. So it's like definitely a, a little bit of a controversy. I think like you know there are some people who are like definitely we shouldn't change it at all because there's already so little understanding. We don't yeah. want to confuse people, and then there's others who yeah who think that it's just a much better. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, all right. So, yeah, maybe I'll try to use like uh, situational more in my my vocabulary. I just feel like I've been like so focused on trying to educate people about yeah. what it is instead, but yeah. if you just change the name, it would help a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so can you tell me like your story, um, your situational mutism story? I guess how long did it affect you and what are your memories around it and all that? Sure. Um, so <laughs> I, um, I never actually got formal treatment or a diagnosis of SM. Um, and that's because of there, just because there's such a lack of awareness in the circles that I grew up with, like people just didn't know that it existed and I'm right. pretty sure that they still don't. Um, so I'm not sure exactly when it began, but I would have to say sometime before elementary school because mm-hmm. um, it's hard for me to remember a time when I didn't struggle with SM. Yeah. Um, and I struggled with SM from that time up until um, of just a few years ago and I'm 23 now. So that's the majority of my life. Yeah. So I was a child, a teenager, and then a young adult. Wow. Yeah. Um, and that's part of my advocacy now. Um, I think it gives me a fuller perspective as an advocate because um, there's so much, I think you've talked about this before too, but there's just so much research and treatment and advocacy that's all focused totally on kids. Yeah. And um, a lot of my advocacy now is reminding people that kids with SM who don't get help will grow up to become teens and young adults with SM and we all deserve inclusion and support. Absolutely, yeah. What was it, I guess, what was it like growing up? Like, how did your family respond to that? And Mm -hmm. how did it affect your school? So, as a kid, I remember being mute mostly at school and at Chinese school, which is, I went there on Saturdays to learn Cantonese. And then um, around other groups of people that I didn't know. Um, And it seemed totally arbitrary. You know, everyone has their own, like, complex set of SM rules. (laughs) And sometimes we don't even know yeah. what they are because um, it's not um, voluntary. But, you know, mm-hmm. up until age 19, I didn't know what was going on with me. All I knew was that um, sometimes I felt like I couldn't speak. Um, and I also, you know, I like sat really stiffly. I had like the mask expression that mm-hmm. people talk about yeah. when it comes to SM. Yeah. yeah. Um, just like trying not to draw any attention to yourself. Um, I couldn't, I found it so hard to make eye contact, um, to make like small noises. Yeah. Like when I was um, younger, I would sharpen my pencil in the screw in the back of my chair instead of getting up to use the electric pencil sharpener because it was too loud oh my god and oh my god so I listened I listened to one of your interviews and you told that story and I couldn't believe it because I also had a pencil issue where I could not get up to sharpen my pencil so 
lead would yeah, fall would out, the and same I would hold thing. the lead between my two fingertips. So ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I do like a full worksheet like that. <laughs> yeah, it's so it's funny, crazy. like the really like random experiences that we have that we have in common. <laughs> Um, yeah, so like I did yeah. that. Um, I, sometimes I would get zeros on my homework because I was too afraid to get up and like put my papers in the bin. Or um, I was like spacing uh-huh. out and I didn't hear the instructions. And then I couldn't ask anybody. So I just mm-hmm. didn't turn in my assignments. Um, yeah. So yeah, it, it like totally affected my school experience. Um, I had a really hard time making yeah. friends. Um, I usually only had like one or two really close friends who were also really quiet and accepting um mm-hmm. but um it was um definitely not an experience that I would want other people to have um luckily my teachers you hear no. some stories about teachers being really miseducated like uneducated and doing things that are really yeah. harmful and luckily I never really had those experiences but it was mostly like other mm-hmm. authorities, my life and my family, who yeah didn't really understand. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can't imagine like growing up and not knowing what was going on. Like I, from a young age, like knew, mm. like I had a name for it, and that helped me kind of understand, and it helped teachers understand, and my family, um, I guess, be able to help me better because they. Mm-hmm. knew what was going on so I can't imagine yeah. not finding out <laughs> until you were that's, yeah 19. that's like part of what wow. makes me so passionate about advocacy now because you yeah. know I see younger people like even kids on TikTok talking about SM and I'm like oh that's so great uh-huh. that you have this information I know. Um, and I really really want more people to have this mm-hmm. information and to know yeah to have a community and they have a community a community is where you you find like confidence to know your worth yeah and like know that you're not yeah. alone like the weird pencil sharpener thing <laughs> not the only person yeah yeah I love hearing that yeah it's like I'm not crazy exactly. it happens to other people and <laughs> yeah. a lot of what I talk about is what happens when there's not education um just like the internal yep. experience for me was you know, I didn't have an explanation for why I couldn't like blow my nose or go to the bathroom, like, raise my hand, go to the bathroom, yeah. ask questions. But I knew that in other situations, I could do that just fine. So naturally, I thought like this just uh-huh. is just my fault. Like I'm just too shy. I just need to break out of my shell. And I like I I'm just not courageous enough. It's a character flaw. I'm selfish. Sometimes I thought of it as like sinful behavior too. And it's just something that I really, really internalized. I think it was really traumatic, honestly. Yeah. Um, to, you know, like the impact that it had on my uh, mental health and also my, um, my, my identity and my self-worth um, was, you know, I'm mm-hmm. still untangling all of it at age 23. Right. And um, the people around me, because they weren't educated, they also kind of reinforced all of those Um, beliefs about myself exactly you know people would get bored with me they would give up on me make fun of me um they'd be offended by my sm and i'm i know that that happens to all of us Uh but when those people are not just your peers but also the people who have authority over you that is really dangerous so i was punished for not speaking 
people like labeled me as stubborn or rude or I was just being antisocial or as arrogant. I already blamed myself so much for being mute because I had no, I didn't know what was going on with me. Um, so it, it just really reinforced all of that. Right. Um, and I remember like one person asked me sometimes when I couldn't speak, like, what are you, a piece of furniture? And it's just like, yeah, it's, <laughs> it, it's just, I find that like the things that people think they can say to you when you can't speak is just like unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. It makes me so mad too, because like, not only are we capable of speech, um, it's yeah. just like, you shouldn't say that about anyone. Like I work mm-hmm. with people with developmental disabilities and autism, and some of them yeah. don't have the capability to speak, but that doesn't mean they don't know what you're yeah. saying about them. Yeah, I found that people treated me as if I was voiceless just because I was speechless. And mm-hmm. um, that was something that I really had to work through when I, I went to New Zealand for study abroad. And yeah. I started learning sign language there because my fifth grade teacher was a sign language interpreter. So she taught us like a lot of signs and things like that. And then I, you know, when I saw the class, I was like, that looks really interesting. So when I was taking it, our teacher is deaf and she was um, so like funny and um, motherly and mm-hmm. a little bit strict. And she would like, tell jokes and make us laugh and she taught us sign language without ever speaking and yeah, yeah and it was just so so cool to watch her sign because here she was embodying her voice without needing to speak and she had yeah. she filled up the room like she had so much personality um people loved being around her and she didn't need to speak to be heard or to have worth or to have something to say. Uh-huh. And that was like so impactful for me um, yeah. because for so long, I always thought that because I wasn't speaking, you know, I didn't have a voice or people treated me as if I didn't yeah. have anything to say. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a really healing experience for me. Yeah, that's incredible. Were you, so you were able to sign like um, in all settings? Um when like when I was um abroad I'm just yeah I'm just curious because I like I personally I don't think I would have been able to use sign language Mm -hmm. just because that would still draw attention exactly yeah I'm just curious where you did you actually use it to communicate in any situation yeah and I thought about that and I think that you know like I also I had I have trouble writing like when I'm Uh when I'm having like a mute episode or whatever you want to call it like I it's yeah it's exactly what you said you don't want to draw any attention to yourself so it's kind of like all communication can be difficult but for every person I think there are some things that you can do and so I think it's really important to seek out those things for each person um but yeah I don't think that I mean I you know what actually I just remembered um in my fifth grade class, we would use some signs um, for just different things like um, asking to go to the bathroom. You would use the toilet yeah. sign, just like a, it's mm-hmm. a T and shaking your hand. And I remember that that was actually easier for me than raising my hand and asking. I like when teachers make it like for the whole classroom too. So it's not like singling one person out. Yeah. And she didn't even do that because there was a 
deaf yeah. child in her class. She just was like an interpreter. She was like, this is yeah, awesome. Yeah, cool. <laughs> to teach my kids. Yeah, and I'm really glad she did that. Um, so how did you eventually find out about selective mutism or situational mutism? Like, how did you figure out what was going on? Um, well, I was 19 and I was um, on a school, I was on a school trip to New York. I was doing this um, summer class program and um, I was totally fine interacting with everybody um, in a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. But once we got on the bus, it was like totally different for me. And for some reason Mm -hmm. I found myself like, I feel like I like can't talk to anybody (laughs) like while we're on this bus. And I think that's always been one of my like SM rules. For some reason, the bus is just always really difficult for me. And I mean, that's, that's SM, right? Situational mutism. Yeah. So like certain situations for everybody are difficult. And, Mm -hmm. but, but I didn't know this. So I was like, what is going on? Like, I've been talking to these people totally fine. And why do I feel so strongly? Like I can't, like, it's so hard for me to turn around and say something or something to the person next to me and I just got so frustrated because this had been going on for me for like my whole life and Mm -hmm. I just didn't have any answers um and so I just um I opened my phone I went to google and I typed in why can't I speak sometimes and Uh that's when I came across um selective mutism and um I kept reading more and it, it took a while actually for me to finally say like, this is something that I experienced partially because of the selective mutism name that confused mm-hmm. me. And then also I think I was just so unaware of the things going on with me, um, like in my body and um, yeah. yeah, like I didn't even realize a lot of the symptoms that I had like my whole life until later on. That's true. Yeah. I'm still discovering things like that. Yeah. yeah I think that's part of the SM, <laughs> isn't it? Um, it's just such a difficult experience to put into words sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was reading more and I just like had this feeling like I was speaking a language that I didn't know I could speak. And um, it was just you know, I, I kept reading and then I went on Facebook and then I found the Facebook group. Um, I am not shy. I have selective mutism, um, which is run by Natasha Dale. And yeah, yeah she's so great. Um, and you know, I, I joined the SM space cafes and I kept reading and reading more. And I was like, wow, there are other people out here who are also like kind of my age and like grow with this and mm-hmm. I could relate to their experiences a lot more than I think the the stuff that was targeted towards kids right um, so yeah and that's when I that's kind of just how it started <laughs> um, I did a lot of reading um, a lot of reading on like Facebook posts and things like that mm-hmm. and looking at the symptom list and um, you know when I finally realized like this is something that I grow with it was like so freeing because my whole life I was like this is like I thought that I was like somehow um unconsciously choosing to do all these things and um it kind of put me in a war against myself and because everybody else was kind of like reinforcing these things 
it just made it so much more difficult. And so when I realized like, oh, there's like actually a biological, like neurological mm -hmm. explanation for this. There's like science behind this. There's yeah. like 200 years, at, at least 200 years of people noticing this and talking about mm -hmm. it. And, and so I was like, I was finally able to let go of the, mm -hmm. the blame and the guilt. Right. Yeah. And forgive yourself. Yeah. You didn't do anything exactly. wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> um, I guess we've talked a little bit about um, like culture and how did that affect like your family's lack of awareness? Yeah. So I think this is something we should talk about a lot more mm -hmm. when it comes to SM because there's definitely the bicultural and bilingual piece for a lot of yeah. people. I've had quite a few parents reach out to me who have bilingual kids with uh -huh. SM. And um, so, yeah, I, th I think it's a really interesting question. So my mom is, my mom was born in New York to, uh, she was the daughter of Chinese immigrants. Okay. And my dad immigrated to America when he was seven. So my family um, is a family of Chinese immigrants. And um, ever since I was a little girl, every single time I saw my grandpa, he still tells me his same life story, the story of how <laughs> our family came to America. And my family came through war and displacement and poverty and stigma and um, to the point where I don't even actually know where my family is from because they got wow. depressed so fiercely. They don't want to talk about it. They came to new lands and they learned new languages and they worked hard jobs and they adored being called chinks and being told that being yellow meant they'd never be seen as wholly American. And they went through all of that just so that we could have better lives. And so there's this expectation that you as a descendant will live out that better life that they fought for. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, that means in many Asian immigrant families, there's this huge pressure to be happy and successful mm -hmm. and like bring pride to the family name. Right. So we're just like bearing the expectations of generations. And so mm -hmm. having SM, I grew up in a community that didn't know that SM existed. Right. And I think, like I mentioned, I think my parents probably still don't know that SM exists. But when I came to my family asking for help for other issues in my like mental health constellation, mm -hmm. like depression, the reaction yeah. was anger. It was shock it was like how can you be depressed when we worked so hard to provide so well for you don't you realize how much more you have than we did and you know my mom's sister has schizophrenia and she was put in an institution because of it she's still there and I didn't even know that she existed until wow. her daughter invited us to her wedding because it was considered shame upon the family name so there's just so much fear and misunderstanding in my family around even basic mental health issues. Mm -hmm. So forget SM. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't even know that SM existed, but if they did, um, it, it would have been the same. Um, so that's a cultural piece. Mm -hmm. And then there is also a religious piece that I just can't separate out. Um, right. So my parents helped start a church along with other Chinese first and second gen immigrants. And uh, my twin and I grew up in that very loving, tight-knit, fundamentalist church. Oh, you're a twin? Um, I am a twin, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and your twin didn't have SM, right? No, I don't think no. that. I don't think that's something that he resonates with. I've talked wow. to him a little bit about it. But it's interesting how these things can be, you know. Yeah. The health experience can be different. In a family. Yeah, I've just, I've seen a couple twins that both have it. So I was wondering. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
I don't know. I'd love to talk to him more about it, but no, it's just not something that um, okay. he's really talked about. Though. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, we grew up going to this church. You know, we didn't just go to church on Sunday. We had like mm-hmm. barbecues and sleepovers and fellowship nights and retreats in the winter and the summer and prayer group on Tuesdays and youth group on Fridays. And so it was, our faith just organized our whole lives. And it was the same when it came to mental health. So one of the names of Jesus is Wonderful Counselor in the mm-hmm. Bible. And so in my family's minds in our church's minds if you had an issue then jesus should be powerful enough to solve it you just needed to believe so i never really got any help for my mental health issues i got like a list of bible verses to memorize Uh and then i was encouraged to pray um and i think if you're on the outside if you haven't grown up in this kind of environment it can definitely feel like what is the logic behind this like Uh come on Um, but then you know, there's still a lot of people who believe these things that like, you don't need a therapist if you're a Christian because God is all you need. And, um, so yeah, it was kind of like both of those dimensions, like the religion and the Uh culture that were kind of working against me. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, definitely (laughs) generational cycles that I think we need to break. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I can't, I just can't imagine. <laughs> it's amazing yeah. that you've done <laughs> so many stories. It's just tell. amazing how much, how far you've come and how you've kind of done yeah, this on your own. And I don't want anyone to have to do that by themselves. You know, I don't want anyone yeah. else to go until age 19 before knowing that mm-hmm. like they're not weak or, um, or selfish or antisocial. They just have something that can be named understood right yeah I love that okay so how did um so do you feel like you had a lot of anxiety like were you able to identify that at least yeah yeah I was I think that growing up so I I grew up in um, an environment of fundamentalism, like I mentioned. Yeah. And I think that kind of created a lot of chaos for me and trying to figure out, like, how to be good in the world and how to be, like, okay uh-huh. in the world. Um, because a lot of the rules around morality seem to be kind of chaotic. And then I also kind of grew up in a um, – <clears throat> I grew up in an abusive environment. So that also created – um, anxiety. So I think that I had that environment and then I also had like my genetic predisposition right. to be anxious. I'm such an anxious person. Like COVID has not been a good time. No, um, <laughs> I can relate. Yeah. But um, even in high school, like I, so here's the thing about me. I'm a very anxious person, but I'm very good at not I'm very good at avoiding feeling my anxiety. So in high school, I um, was really, really anxious. Um, and because I pushed it down so much, my body re-expressed that as nausea. So Yeah, I, me too. <laughs> like, oh my God, literally on the first day of school, um, I went to like a small school. So the entire school was one in one auditorium. And I was so anxious that I just threw up on the floor oh my in the God. first, yeah, in the first period on the first day of school in front of literally everybody, including the janitor, like everybody oh in the God. building. was. <laughs> so, and, and I just, I kept struggling. Like I had so much nausea 
every day for like a while. I did too. Yeah. And panic attacks. I can't tell you how many times I've thrown up at school. Yeah. (laughs) Or like on the bus. Oh my God. Shout out to my bus driver. Uh, I wouldn't even take the bus. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a struggle because, you know, like SM, I think SM is interesting because it is a mental health condition, but then it also Mm -hmm. becomes a disability and it also becomes like this like physical condition. Like it really shows you how much the brain and the body are connected. It does. Yeah. Because a lot of us, other than like all of the SM symptoms, we also have like nausea and we have like Mm -hmm. all these other anxiety related physical symptoms. Yeah. So you also came out as LGBTQ plus. I don't know if you want to go into that, but I'm wondering how that, like, I'm sure SM and anxiety also played a role in that. Um, this is a super interesting question. I think I came out when I was like, oh my God, how old was I? Wait, I'm 23 <laughs> now. So I was, I was probably like 19 or 20. So it wasn't that long after I discovered SM. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think, you know, like in the actual coming out process, SM didn't really come up. I think huh. it's interesting. To th- I've never thought about it before, but um, when I did come out, um, to it was to my parents um, over the phone. We were just having like a normal phone conversation and uh-huh. I just like blurted out the words. And it was like, I didn't even, it was almost like I didn't choose <laughs> to say, but uh-huh. it just, like the words just, found their way out of my mouth because I was just ready and that's interesting right because SM is like the opposite (laughs) um but I think that like growing up feeling so voiceless um really contributed to my depression and Mm -hmm. um I struggled so much with depression um when I was younger and especially because like while I was in the closet And so when I finally came out, it was this, like, act of, like, finally setting myself free from all Mm -hmm. of this silence, not, like, being able to talk about my, um, not being able to, like, just, like, have my sexuality (laughs) as, like, just one part of me. Like, it's not even that I need to talk about my sexuality. It's just that I wasn't allowed to be bisexual um and so something about my coming out process is that I always knew that um my parents were not going to accept it and that's what part of what made it so difficult Mm -hmm. um and so like oppressive um because I always knew that they were going to accept me and that once they found out I was going to have to take going to have to take measures to protect myself yeah So when I did come out, it was like knowing full well the cost, but believing that I could pay it. And um, that I think was that act of like finally having agency in my life Mm -hmm. does tie in with SM where I was so afraid of having attention upon me. I was so afraid of being rejected by Mm -hmm. people. I was so afraid of what people would think of me. And then by coming out, I was finally saying to myself, I trust you enough to show up fully in the world and still be okay. Uh And yeah. That's That's huge. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing that you just blurted it out. I feel like sometimes that happens though. Like you, I think the more you think about what you're going to say, the harder it becomes. So sometimes things just come out and it's easier that way. 
yeah you just have to like <laughs> oh you just have to get it over with and it just like controls your life yeah you know yeah so what do you think because you didn't really have any treatment or even people that understood so like what helped you overcome selective mutism or situational mutism yeah, people ask this question a lot. I wish I had a better answer. I wish I, I, I don't know. I, I, um, you know, there are all these, I've been learning about all these like treatment approaches, like shaping mm-hmm. and desensitiz- desensitization and things yeah. like that. I don't really know like what I did. I think I remember, <laughs> um, I remember when I first learned about SM, I went to my therapist and I was like, we need to talk about this. And I had to explain SM to her because she didn't really yep all that much about it I've done that before too yeah 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 kind of every therapist I have I find myself needing to explain it yeah not a lot of people yeah it's okay at least I'm educating them yeah (laughs) yeah that's great Um, yeah but she didn't so she didn't really know that much about it and um I mean I think that SM like specialists are still pretty far um they're they're difficult to find yeah yeah even for kids and so it's, I don't know if like anybody who specializes for um, young adults or teenagers. Well, yeah. I would just, I would guess I would just say young adults. So I didn't have like anybody to go to. Um, and so I just kind of had to come up with my own thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think like, luckily for me, the SM had gotten better with every time that I went to a totally new environment where nobody uh-huh. knew me. Because yeah. something that really, really held, held me back is um the like reputation right that that forms around you as being like the person with the who doesn't talk yeah right and then um that becomes who you are and then yeah and sometimes you don't even have the chance to find out who you are Mm -hmm. or what your personality is because of your sm so every time i went to a new school i would take it as an opportunity for a blank slate. And I just had so much like drive inside me to not be that person. And I had so much belief inside me that I was this like passionate, silly, friendly person that nobody mm-hmm. else saw. But I just had to cling on to that belief that I was that person deep down. Yeah. Um, and so every time I went to a new school, I just tried my hardest to set new precedence for myself Uh so I would try to talk to more people that way you know like if I didn't talk to anybody on the first day then that would be the president that I had and then it'd be a lot harder to talk to them in the future yeah so um the best example is um college um because I just like in increments like from elementary to middle school to high school it slowly got better for me although Mm -hmm. it was still it was still like pretty bad um but when I got to college it was like this like weight lifted off of me. And mm-hmm. for some reason I could talk to a lot more people. Yeah. Um, but I found that I still struggled with a lot of like littler things, like talking to people on the bus. Um, or like if you, if I saw my, uh, a friend at a distance, I couldn't uh-huh. shout hello to them. Like yeah. I couldn't do that. You know, I, so I still had my like complex SM rules uh-huh. that like, ruled my life and I all I remember is that I would do um this thing where I was like I want to do one hard thing every day mm-hmm. and um I think that I just lived so long with SM that I was like I need to 
I think it just gave me that drive. Yeah. You challenge yourself. Yeah. And yeah, something else I did is I just tried to trust in my body. Like I felt like there was no way that I could physically speak or do this thing. But if I just allowed my body to do it anyway, um, or just almost like separated from my body and allowed mm-hmm. my body to like operate by itself. That was how I started to be able to like shout hello to people from a distance. Uh-huh. I remember it was almost like coming out. It was like the words <laughs> just like blurted themselves out of my mouth. And I don't yeah. feel like I was the one who was like, I don't feel like I like was trying to do that or like chose to do that. But it was almost like my body was was just like I got this. Let me show you that I can do this. And uh-huh. then, yes. Um, like I remember the feeling of the words coming out of my mouth were like really shocking to me, <laughs> and I was like, oh, like I can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, like I I've done this for the first time, and I just needed the first time. Yeah. For me to keep going. Yeah. yeah. I wish I had like a better answer and like how I how I um no, that's recovered good. by myself but I think I just kind of yeah it it worked for me. yeah <laughs> I know what you mean by like switching schools like that was definitely one of the yeah. biggest things for me and I guess I switched in for seventh grade I started at a new school and I was speaking before that like mm. more than usual but there was like I felt like I hit a wall mm-hmm. and like the only way that I could be myself was if I switched to a new school mm-hmm and yeah. then again in high school and then college I felt totally free <laughs> yeah that's awesome yeah that's a question that I find parents asking too like uh-huh. a lot in Facebook like should my kids switch schools and it's hard because it's different for everyone yeah it's hard to know if they're ready to like start fresh yeah 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 but I definitely was <laughs> yeah I'm glad I th- <laughs> I think I've seen like super positive mostly super positive um results yeah definitely it is hard that's my next question about teens and adults it's hard I don't know it's like sometimes you see these people who are still struggling so much and it seems like they've tried a lot of things and I don't know what kind of advice do you have for people like young adults who are still struggling with it I guess not so much in terms of like here are my tips on recovery but more like um these are just like my words to you, um, like from a person who uh, has lived with SM. Um, I think that like living in this world, there's so much, um, we really put speech on a pedestal and um, people really prize like speaking mm-hmm. to the point where like we all have lived through the consequences of people thinking that we are disobedient or antisocial or rude or uninterested and things like that. And I think that it can really take a toll. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that, you know, I'd love to see in the SM um, advocacy space for more people to talk about um, how ableism can be traumatic. And ableism is basically just a system of discrimination where um, someone makes somebody else feel inferior or less than because of a disability and SM can be seen as a disability and I know that there are probably there may be some people listening who um, don't really know that much about the disability rights movement or yeah or like 
you know, you might feel that it's kind of a dirty word or a stigma and just disabled just is a word that means that you have a condition that makes it difficult for you to do certain activities um, or to like interact in the world the way that Mm. other people expect you to. And um, yeah, I think, I think that um, a lot of people with SM experience ableism um, when it comes to, you know, like speech is the highest form of communication. And if you're not talking to me, then you don't have something to say, um, which is a specific form of ableism, which is called autism, something that a lot of deaf folks talk about. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, we need to recognize that these experiences that we have can be traumatic and we deserve to heal from them. And we all deserve to know that, you know, whether we are speechless or not, we still have a voice. And if Mm -hmm. people aren't seeking out ways to hear your voice just because you can't speak, then that's not a reflection of you. It just means that they are not curious enough or open-minded enough to realize that you have worth, whether you can speak or not. Mm-hmm. And um, I just really want people to know that, um, like, I see your worth. And I think that's something that I really needed people to say mm-hmm. to me when I was really struggling. Um, yeah, I know that resources for teens and young adults are really few and far mm-hmm. between still. So unfortunately, I don't know if I have that much. I don't know if I have that many tips to give when it comes to like the technical side of like how to deal with SM. But yeah, I think yeah. that's still really important, like the emotional side of things. Mm-hmm. And you beat yourself up for this, like, especially if it's going on into teen and adulthood, like mm-hmm. just you're so hard on yourself and I it's hard not to be but it's not your fault (laughs) yeah and especially when it starts to affect like other aspects of your life like work college um social life that's I mean definitely did for me yeah and um it's definitely different from being a kid yeah because I think after a certain point people are like okay well I'm still this age and Mm -hmm. I still have SM and like is this ever going to resolve for me? Yeah. Um, is, are things ever going to be different? Like I now have to find a job and um, I have to like deal with college classes and things like right. that. And those are like really unique and like difficult challenges mm-hmm. for people. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It gets a lot more complicated and then usually depression is involved and yeah all kinds of other anxiety yeah. problems <laughs> like it's so common unfortunately yeah. yeah it's definitely an area that I want to work on more and I think we need more resources for teens and adults yeah definitely there's a big group of people out there who are teens and young adults mm-hmm. by SM. like that there's like whole Facebook groups about it uh-huh. I've um, seen some yeah <clears throat> yeah I mean like I mentioned before like if kids don't get the help that they need or, you know, the help that they're getting isn't um, what's working for them. As they're growing up, they will become teens and young adults with SM. So I'd love to see more research and, like, effort into yeah. these, this group of people, too. Me, too. Yeah. So how did you discover disability activism? And how did that affect 
you. Yeah. So I touched on that before. Um, but yeah, I, um, I do consider my SM to be a disability mm -hmm. and I know that, you know, everybody, um, can form their own perspective on what their SM is to them. For me, I consider it a disability. And the reason for that is because I was first introduced to the world of disability activism when I went to New Zealand mm -hmm. and I talked about that sign language teacher. Yeah. Um, and it was just, you know, like I would read um, papers about how like deaf children were treated in New Zealand um, in like the schools. Yeah. Just not even that long ago. And they would talk about how like sign language was formed. Like the kids created their own sign language wow. to communicate with each other, but then they weren't allowed to use it. And they were, you know, the teachers would try to force them to speak. Uh. And um, I learned about like the trauma that a lot of the older deaf folks hold there. And this also happened in America and like a lot of other countries. Mm -hmm. um, but I saw the parallel parallels there like wow this is like a society that upholds speaking uh -huh. as like the highest form of communication that's what autism is that's yeah. why I learned about that um and then when I was in I think a few a few years later I did the star fellowship at the Lurie Institute of Disability Policy at Brandeis just where I was going to school and I did my fellowship with Sandy Ho so she's one of the three Asian American disability activists who coined um it's a hashtag access is love okay um, so it was her, Mia, Mia Mangus, and Alice Wong. And so I was um, working with her. She's a dis uh, disability activist um, to do research um, on how disabled people can become more involved in um, like civil, oh my God, what is it called? Um, uh, civic engagement. And um, she had some really great conversations with me about my story and um the whole fellowship was just really encouraging to me to own my story as a disabled story because before then i always kind of thought that disabled was a dirty word um w when i was growing up at yeah. least and <clears throat> that it was oh it's just like it's sad or it's like the, you know they're they're just different from us mm -hmm. and things like that and when i was doing this fellowship i was like really connected with this history and this community of people who have fearlessly fought for their rights um for such a long mm -hmm. time who have this belief that they have worth and they have a right to be seen and included and um that's part of what the hashtag access is love is about and I love talking about it when it comes to SM because I think that parents can really relate to it yeah. like immediately you know because when we talk about including kids with SM in the classroom or when we talk about include um, making accommodations for um, young adults at work who have SM yeah. um, but you know especially for kids and parents um, when we talk about accommodations, it's not just uh, our legal right or a moral imperative. It's an act of love. And, um, you know, I had a really, like, poignant experience when I was in New Zealand with a friend. And I had, basically, I um, had, like, an SM episode that was really unexpected. And I was with these friends that I had 
never had SM symptoms around before. And I was so terrified of how they would receive me. And I was being really hard on myself in my head. I was, I was just sitting there um, in this table of friends um, silently because I knew that eventually they would notice and then they did. And I felt, just felt so ashamed. Um, but one of my friends um, asked me this question, um, do you, oh, what did he ask me? He asked, do you want um, distraction or do you want space? Mm -hmm. And nobody had ever asked me what I needed before. That's a great reaction. I still, yeah, <laughs> I still get so emotional yeah. talking about it because nobody had responded to me in that right. way. I was so used to like people getting upset mm -hmm. or confused and he just like without missing a beat was so accepting. Yeah, that's amazing. And then he walked me back to my flat and gave me this uh, really great hug. Oh. Like one of those hugs that communicates that someone really cares about uh -huh. you without having to say anything. We need more and, that. And um, <laughs> yeah, so emotional about it. Yeah. So uh, it was just so transformative. And I, I love telling that story um, and juxtaposing it with, you know, my other stories of how I was treated growing up because I think it shows how um, just taking the steps to include somebody yeah. um, with SM or any other disability is like it's not just like what we're owed mm -hmm. or um, like a teacher's like legal obligation it's it can be received as love mm -hmm. like it's an act of care um, and so I, I just really love talking about that and that is a hashtag that was coined by my mentor yeah. um, so and two other Asian American activists. And yeah, so um, that's why I love kind of bringing disability activism into SM advocacy. And there are some other really great advocates who have had SM um, who are also kind of like having these conversations mm -hmm. and have been since before I entered the space. Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful for them. Yeah, I guess I, I don't know. I never thought of it as a disability growing up but it, it really is like it affects your whole life and yeah it does. yeah and the way that I mean it's hard when people see it like accommodations as like you're asking mm -hmm. too much or you're mm -hmm. a hindrance on them and mm -hmm. yes. it's really just making an equal playing field so that you can yeah. live your life yeah and that's that's what the disability um rights movement is here yeah. for to say like accommodations are not a burden mm -hmm. um, and we are not a burden and um, you know it's up to each person to determine whether they want to see their SM as a disability or mm -hmm. not you know it's also kind of complicated because you can recover from right. it and not have any symptoms anymore um, but yeah um, a lot of people don't know that mental health conditions can also be considered disabilities mm -hmm. Um, like even things like PTSD or depression can be considered disabilities. Um, and I think for me, because, you know, it, it just seemed clear cut, like I, in some situations can't verbally communicate mm -hmm. the way that other people expect me to. And that's a disability. Yeah. It's a situational disability, but it's still a disability. Right. And I think it's important for me to connect with to connect my SM with being a disability because then it connects me with this history yeah. and community of people who are reminding me that I have worth and that I have rights. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you, does it still affect you today, uh, situational mutism? 
So it actually doesn't um, really come up in my life anymore unless I'm really, um, like unless my CPTSD is like really triggered. That's the only time I've really seen it come up. Um, but even as short as like a few years ago, like three years ago, it was very different. So I think I've come a long way. Yeah. I guess that's mm -hmm. a testament to what happens when you have um, education about SM. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. The information. It's yeah. so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, f I always like to talk about like the aftermath of it because once you're technically cured or you overcame it, there's still like, mm -hmm. you still have anxiety yeah. usually and you still have like the almost trauma of that yep. whole experience um, yeah. growing up with it. So Yeah, I definitely still have yeah. anxiety. <laughs> uh, it just yeah. doesn't express itself as SM anymore. Yeah. Yeah. How do you kind of manage your anxiety? Oh my god, I'm still learning. Um, Me too. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, <laughs> I want some ideas, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because I guess you could say that like I don't really have SM symptoms anymore, but um, yeah. I have had so many more like really um, strong issues with my like GI system. Like for now, yeah. when I'm anxious, it triggers my like GI system. In Me too. Yeah, instead of my SM symptoms. Um, wow. Yeah. And so I'm like, I'm still working with my therapist to figure all of that out. Um, grounding techniques and things like mm -hmm. that. And I'm, I'm looking into like things that I can incorporate into my diet that are better for my GI uh -huh. system and anxiety, things like that. Yep. It's always an evolving journey with mental health, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. <laughs> I've been really wanting to like, get into meditation I know that would help me but I just haven't been able to commit to that <laughs> yeah I've like but, I've tried to do the same thing also with yoga and I'm just like oh, yeah I don't have the dedication <laughs> but it is good for yeah. me <laughs> it is yeah um okay well I have this final question for you how has letting yourself be curious affected your life oh I think you know when it comes with to SM I was talking about how like SM can make you feel like the personality or the things that other people see is like the totality of who you are. And um, that was like a major part of my depression. Um, yeah. Just feeling like all that I was, was like what my SM portrayed to other people. And the thing that got me through that was this just, just like dogged belief in me being um a person who was like friendly and silly and those things that I mentioned before deep down yeah. that I like that I always had something to give and that I always like had my own unique person personality and my contributions to yeah. the world and I just had to cling to that belief and mm -hmm. when I was going to, into new environments I would try to um just be curious and see like what happens. Like I'm getting to learn about myself and my personality, mm -hmm. the more and more that I recover from SM, that was kind of my mindset. Um, yep. And there's a lot to learn. Um, so yeah, I've, I've used curiosity a lot in my healing process from a lot of different things um, from like racial trauma and 
um, queer trauma and, um, you know, even just uh, when talking about SM again, um, talking about the trauma that um, I experienced because of other people's um, misconceptions about SM, the way that they treated me when I couldn't speak was traumatic for me. Yeah. And so, you know, I didn't really have, like, in the fields of mental health and trauma recovery, there's not really this understanding that systems of social injustice can be traumatic, too, like racism mm-hmm. and ableism and um, things like that. And so there's not really resources for how to process those things. So I had to kind of create my own. And what I did was I did this, like, inner child meditation where I tried to um, visualize my inner child who like the my younger self who had sm and then um the whole like inner child meditation was based around questions so it was all about like noticing like what is my younger self feeling what um like where is she like what is happening and um the answers to all these questions taught me so much about what i still needed to heal and like the wounds that i was still carrying and the beliefs that my younger self had about herself because she had SM. Um, so it was all about asking questions and being curious, um, especially because I think I just kind of like pushed a lot of it down when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I didn't have words or space to process all of it. And I still really need to do that. So um, yeah. yeah, asking questions has been really helpful. Yeah. Well, are there any other questions that you wish I asked you? Or do you have any for me? Um, you asked some really terrific questions. You really did your homework. Thank you. So I, I had so much fun during this conversation. Thank you for <laughs> me having too. me. I'm so glad. Yeah, I think you're wonderful. I'm so glad you came on. I think I really love everything you do. Aww, I think thank it's you. Yeah, I was so excited when I found your podcast, you and your mom, because it was like, there are no podcasts about SM. Like you guys are the only ones out there. (laughs) Hopefully just the first, not the only in the future. But um, yeah, it's just really great to um, hear from other people who have SM and I think who who have and have had SM. And I think it's so great what you're doing. Um, Also Mm -hmm. like bringing your mom into the picture because I think it's really important for us to hear like both sides of the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, I I really don't get to talk to other people who've had SM that often, especially when I'm telling my story. So this was the first time, actually. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad. Thank you for listening to Out Loud, the Selective Mutism podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in your podcast app. Goodbye.